We are going to be in the Minor Prophets for probably a couple months. Uh, And uh, I just want to, again, set the stage, the context for this study. In the Hebrew Bible, the Minor Prophets, 12 of them, were all kept together as a single book called the Book of the Twelve or the Book of the Twelve Prophets. They were called minor prophets not because their message wasn't important, but because they were small. And that's the reason why, according to one of the rabbis, that they got collected into one collection. The fear was that if they didn't, one of the smaller ones might get lost. And so, before the canon was brought together as a whole uh, of the Old Testament, there was the book of the twelve, which was these twelve prophets. And we're talking about prophecies that extended from around nine, the ninth century to the 5th century B.C. 400 plus years before the life of Christ. And in terms of Hosea, the one we're looking at first, Hosea was prophesying somewhere around 750 to 710 B.C. We know that from the names of the kings that he listed there at the beginning of the first chapter, uh, talking about who was there and starting later in the first one that he mentions and probably just getting into the beginning of the last one he mentions, we're looking at roughly about 750 to 710 B.C. for his prophecy. Now, I didn't address this question last Sunday, uh, but I think it's one that we do need to think about and talk about. What is a prophet? Because a lot of times when we think in terms of prophecy, we lock in on too narrow of a meaning. Prophecy did not primarily even have to do with telling the future. There was some future aspect involved at times. But the majority of the prophecy had to do with God's Messenger, a person who received a message from God, proclaiming that in speech, in action, in writing, in symbolic behavior to the people about how they were living and what was going to be the result of that type of behavior. So the future aspect of it had to do with the the idea that that if you don't change, if you don't repent, these things, these bad things are going to happen. And yet, it also brought about the idea that God in His covenant faithfulness and in His promises did also say, but there will come a day. And in that day, things will be better. That's a prophet. Now, when we were talking about Hosea, I mentioned to you that probably Jeremiah saw himself as a disciple of Hosea. Even though Jeremiah was much later, uh, his birth wasn't until 652 B.C., uh, he, he follows that line of mission the same kind of thoughts, the same kind of phrases that Hosea had proclaimed uh, a couple of years, uh, or a couple hundred years earlier. And so that's again why I want to say we're not talking about minor messages when we talk about minor prophets. They are major messages, but they are in small little books. 
And when we go to Hosea, I shared with you that Hosea probably is what is considered a book of love. A book about God's love. I shared with you how one great preacher, Hatton Robinson, said that it was the greatest love story that ever was. A story about God's love. And and we discussed a little bit. Do we talk about that love in terms of reckless love? And we had that song, we passed out the words, and we looked at the idea of, of the God who is willing to leave the 99 behind and go out to seek that one. The God who is willing to, when He sees the prodigal son still at a distance, far off, He's willing to run to Him. Now, we don't even understand that phrase. That's how important it is for us to understand history. Do you know that a respectable Jewish man was never seen running? And yet that story that Jesus says where the Father represents God says that the Father ran to meet the Son. God loves us that much. And we talked last Sunday about how in many ways that that love was scandalous. Because in the book of Hosea, God tells Hosea, I want you to go and I want you to marry a prostitute. Because I want you to understand firsthand, experientially, what it feels like to to love someone who betrays you. And then you have to go and redeem her back. So that when you speak to the people of Israel, you'll be speaking not just from your head, but from your heart as well. A story of God's love for His people. Hosea, representing God. Gomer, representing Israel, and therefore representing us. And it's a love that keeps pursuing. Even in terms of the church. Even in terms of the church. Uh, Eric and I were having conversations over the last couple days as he was preparing and getting ready for the wedding. And, and our minds were on the same page because I said, you know, one of the things that your grandfather already always used in a wedding and one of the things that I've always used in the wedding is how in Ephesians, Paul talks about the relationship of the husband and the wife. And he goes into that. And then he says, but, but I'm not talking about marriage. I'm talking about the church. The mystery of the church. Jesus loves His bride. And who is Jesus' bride? We are. The church is. In fact, we're to be a victorious bride. Isn't that what Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, verse 18? When He said to Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. But then He said, I will build My church. I will build My church. I am a part of this church, but this isn't My church. You are a part of this church, but this isn't your church. You don't own it. It's the church of Jesus Christ. 
We are members of it. We are members of that body. And Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That phrase has been so misinterpreted and so misunderstood. What is the function of a gate? To keep people out. And the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church. It's not a defensive statement. And sometimes I think we have this image that we are standing behind the gates and hell's not going to prevail and get to us. No, Jesus is saying the gates of hell are not going to be able to prevail against the onslaught of the church. But we have been just sitting back passively saying, oh, we're the church and maybe we shouldn't do that because we don't want to offend anybody instead of proclaiming God's Word in all of its truthfulness. It reminded me of the words of a 17th century Puritan. I I like the Puritans. Uh, I like some of their writing. John Owen uh, and a lot of his commentaries, uh, he did a massive commentary uh, on... uh, He did, I think, four or five volumes on one book. Uh, the book of Hebrews. Uh, But Thomas Adams, not related to President Adams that I know of, Thomas Adams was a Puritan preacher 17th century. He died in 1652. Here's what he says about the church. And I love this. The church may be sick, yet not die. Die it cannot. For the blood of an eternal king, that's Jesus, the blood of an eternal king bought it. The power of an eternal spirit preserves it. And the mercy of an eternal God shall crown it. I love that. I've loved it ever since uh, it was brought to my attention in one of my spiritual formation classes at Lincoln. The church is not going to do anything except prevail. Now, local bodies, we know of local bodies that have died, don't we? But not the church. Now, we continue this sermon series on major messages from the minor prophets. And today our message is about a redeeming love. Not a reckless love, not a scandalous love, but a redeeming love. And though our text includes, and I'm going to talk about chapter 2, I just want to read the the five verses of chapter 3 as our written and heard text this morning. And so, from Hosea chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, Go again love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress even as the Lord loves the children of Israel though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins and so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer of of lethic of barley and I said to her 
You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word today. When I looked at this passage, looking first at the second chapter, the first thing that stood out to me is how Hosea is emphasizing through Gomer our stubborn character. Remember, Gomer represents the people of Israel. Gomer represents the church. And in verse 2 of chapter 2, Gomer has returned to her life of sin. There's a, a change in their relationship. That first, that second verse of chapter 2 says to the children, Hosea says to the children, plead with your mother. Plead. For she's not my wife and I'm not her husband. Plead that she will put away. In other words, that she'll repent. Now, I've, I've read this. I've read it over. I've read it again. And I have come to the opinion and a few other commentators also that though Jezreel was Hosea's son, the other two children weren't. With Jezreel, it specifically uses the phrase, she conceived and bore him a son. But then it talks about how she returned to her life of prostitution, her life of sin. And in verses 3 to 5 of chapter 2, Hosea talks about how Gomer, and therefore Israel, and therefore us, how we will be severely punished if we don't repent. And in verses 6 to 7, Hosea, representing God, even tries to build a hedge, a wall, a way of helping us, a way of protecting us from that sinfulness. And notice how it's to no avail. His hope, Hosea's hope, is that that wall, that hedge, will bring about something where she will say, I will go and return to my first husband. That's Hosea. She'll go back. That's what a Hosea's hope is, is that she'll do that by him building this wall around her to try to keep men away, to try to keep her from actually being able to have any benefits from her sinful life. But then in verses 8 to 13, she doesn't repent, and the sin brings about famine for her and for Israel, it brings about shame. Now I will uncover her lewdness. Verse 10. I will put an end to her mirth. Verse 11. I'll lay waste her vines and her fig trees. Verse 12. She's not going to have those benefits of the sinfulness. But 
That's not the end of the story, is it? Look at verse 14 to 23. In these verses, I think we see the persistence of God's love. Verse 14, for the third time in just this chapter, Hosea uses the phrase, therefore. And then, after that therefore, he uses 14 statements that begin with I will. 14. Two times seven. Seven being the number for completeness, wholeness. Fourteen statements beginning with I will. What God's going to do. And notice some of the things that He says. I will lure her back to the desert. The desert. That's where Israel really embraced God. Go back to Deuteronomy and you'll see that. Go forward to the 13th chapter of Hosea, verse 4. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but Me. And besides Me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness in the land of drought. The Lord says, I'm going to lure you back to the desert where we can have those positive experiences. I think it's really intriguing. And and I guess I need to find myself one of those places. But it says often in the Gospels that Jesus went to a place alone to pray. And often they found themselves in the wilderness. Then He talks about what He's going to do in terms of the Valley of Achor. Now, the history of the Valley of Achor is that at one time it was a positive image, but it had become marred by the sin of Achan. And the word itself means disaster. But notice what God is saying here. I am going to make the Valley of Achor, I'm going to make disaster a door of hope. A positive image for us. And then, He uses in that same section of verses three times in that day. In that day, a future time when Israel fully will be loving God as they did during the Exodus. Verses 14 and 15. He says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tender." tenderly to her. And there I'll give her her vineyards. And I'll make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth. As at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. I want you to keep one phrase in your mind when you're reading the Old Testament. Even sometimes when you're reading the New. I want you to keep in mind The phrase, who delivered us from Egypt. Who brought us out of Egypt. Because that is one of the the signs of who God is. It's a relational sign. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God who brought you out of the slavery of Egypt. And notice verses 19-20 to of chapter 2. 
It's going to be a new marriage. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. It's a new marriage, a new relationship, a new relationship that even results with the children being changed, signifying, signified by the new names. We haven't sung it for a while, but I just love that song. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. And the angels, what do they do? They sing the story that a sinner has come home. The kids are given new names. Jezreel, which at one time had been a symbol of hope, but had become a reminder of the failure of spiritual disaster in Hosea's day, Jezreel is once again going to live up to his name that God plans. And mercy? Remember her name had been changed? I'm not going to call you mercy. Your name's no mercy. Now, instead of no mercy, her name's going to be changed to mercy. And not my people... Her name, his name is going to be changed to my children of God, my people. Love is going to be shown to not my people. And that brings us really to our text that we read today, chapter 3. Because just like symbolized by the changing of the names, there is in fact going to be a new condition. A new condition brought about by redeeming love. Now notice in verse 1 of chapter 3 that we read. It says, go again above a woman who's loved by another man. I think Hosea is being told to go back and find Gomer. Because he says to the kids... Plead with your mother, even though she's not my wife. Hosea is being told, you go back and love that woman who now is loved by another man. And Hosea says, I bought her, I bought her back for a pretty lofty price. Fifteen shekels of silver, a homer, and a lethic of barley. But there's conditions. Notice the conditions. He says to her, you have to dwell as mine. You have to be obedient. You have to be allegiant. You have to be loyal. I uh, shared yesterday at the Stone Campbell Conference on the concept of uh, allegiance to our King, Jesus. And with the writing of Matthew Bates and uh, Teresa Morgan, I am convinced that in the first century in the Roman Empire, pistes, the Greek word, and fides, the Latin word, those words were thought of in terms of relationship, not in terms of mental concept. And so when, when it says in Ephesians, Paul says, you are saved by grace. 
I can say amen, I agree. There's nothing that I can ever do to earn it. But then in verses 8 to 10 of that same chapter, he repeats that line, you are saved by grace through faith. Why does he add the through faith? I think it's because when we say you're saved by grace, that's God's part. But our part in it, sanctification, is our being loyal, allegiant, faithful. It involves obedience. It involves transformation. Isn't that what Paul wrote in chapter 12 of Romans? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be someone that's willing to do the hard change of changing from a caterpillar to a butterfly. Metamorphosis. And here, in these verses, he tells her to be transformed. You're not going to play the whore. You're not going to belong to another man. And I am going to be faithful and loyal to you as well. So will I also be to you. And then notice also, there's to be fear, awe, and respect. They shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. The story of Hosea is a story of love. But it's a story about how God's love is such that when we experience it, we should be wanting to change. We should be wanting to make those things in our lives that aren't right, right. Those elements of our idolatry. And believe me, idolatry is rampant. If you don't believe me, just start asking this question when you meet people. Hey, I'm just kind of doing a little research on my own. What is it that you trust in? What really helps you to feel like everything's okay? What do you trust in? And I guarantee you, you're going to get more answers that involve, well, I've got my IRAs. I've got my money in the bank. I've got this job. My house is paid for. All kinds of, what Paul says, garbage like that. Because what the minor prophets are going to tell us in a major way is that if we don't trust in God, if we trust in chariots and horses, military tools, if we trust in any of that, then we are guilty of idolatry. I want to close with a story. It's a story that was told by Charles Spurgeon. That's the only validity that I can give the story because I, I couldn't find the incident any other place. But I have no reason to doubt it. It's a story about how an Englishman at Ningpu asked a very respectable Chinaman one day, have you ever heard the gospel before? And the Chinaman looked at him and said, no, but I have seen it. And he went on to tell the tale about how there was a man in his community who was an opium addict. 
a smoker. And he was the terror of the neighborhood. That he would go back day after day harassing people, trying to get things from them so that he could buy his opium. And one day that man came in contact with a missionary who explained to him the message of Jesus Christ. And he accepted that message. And he was changed, wholly changed by conversion to Christianity. And that Chinaman said to this Englishman, no, but I have seen it in the change that it did with that man. So the teaching must be good. Now, let me ask you this. What are we saying to our neighbors, our friends, the people that we meet in the community, at the store? What are we saying to them when they find out we're Christians? Yesterday I was talking with Bill and Joni Baker after I finished my presentation. Longtime friends since back in college days at Lincoln. And Joni was talking about how she was about to call it quits with Facebook because she was so disappointed with a person who used Facebook. And she said, I I wish they wouldn't have identified themselves as a Christian. I wish they would have just gone on with their rant. But they started out by identifying themselves as a Christian and then said some of the most hateful, most ugly, most negative things that anybody could say. Not confronting the person with the truth, but condemning. What will people say when they see our lives, see our behavior? Will they say, I've seen the gospel message, so it must be true? Let's pray.